Have you ever wondered how it is that some professing Christians get away with the sin that they commit? You're anything like me, at least me when I am at my worst, you have thought, if I was just God, I would deal with these people just like this. (laughs) And aren't you glad that each one of us are not God, because there would probably be a lot less people in here this morning, amen? (laughs) Uh, Well, there's been times when God has physically judged humans with the loss of their lives, not the least of which, which happened at the flood where only Noah and his family survived. In the fourth book of the law, Numbers, you'll remember that Korah and his sons and his family members and those who came around him decided to usurp the spiritual leadership, or they wanted to, uh, usurp the spiritual leadership of Moses and the Levitical priesthood. And if you're familiar with that, you'll know that the earth swallowed all of those up whom had aligned with Korah and those who were making themselves out to be priests were burned with fire. What if everyone who rose up against their pastor was burned with fire or was swallowed up by the earth? That would make for some really entertaining business meetings, wouldn't it? Would you like to speak now? Blow us down maybe a little bit. Mr. Big Britches and Sister Talks a Lot would probably be skipping that meeting. God causing death was not just limited to the Old Testament. In our minds, we can skip on over to the New Testament. We can remember that Ananias and Sapphira in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 5 had decided to somehow, I would even call it some form of a white lie, decided to come to the apostles and give the appearance that they had uh, sold all of their land and they were bringing all of that money to lay at the apostles' feet like many others. But what we do know is that that was not correct, and Peter knew that by the Spirit. In Acts 5, 4, and 5, Peter, speaking to Ananias about this, he said this, "'You have not lied to men, but to God.'" And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And just three hours later, we find in the text that uh, Sapphira walks in and Peter says this in verses 9 and 10, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed his last. You ever paused for just a second and thought, What if every time some professed Christian lied or told the pastor a half-truth and without fail, every time someone did that, they fell over dead? (laughs) That would definitely spice up my biblical counseling meetings. I'd have to put on a few more staff members, professional pallbearers. (laughs) They'd just sit outside the doors here and wait for people to tip over. Can you imagine Maybe a husband or a wife or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, disgruntled so-and-so, walks into my office. I shut the door. They begin to speak, and boom, right? (laughs) They fall over dead. I'm not very smart, but if the sin of lying always caused death, I'm guessing there would be a lot more truth-telling going on inside the church and a lot less biblical counseling, too. The Apostle Paul wrote the Corinthian church about their 
poor communion practices. He told them this in 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 30, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Reference there is to they're dead, taking communion wrong. You're sick, you're weak, and people are dying because of it. We're going to take communion today, beloved, and can you imagine if at the communion service this after this morning, we would pass out the elements, we would close our eyes, we would take our communion and pray all the while with the anticipation that when we open our eyes, there would be sick and dead people laying all over in the pews because they had taken communion in the wrong way. And why? Because their hearts, they were unwilling to repent, unwilling to confess their sin, unwilling to turn. I'm willing to bet if God was actively dishing out this kind of mortal judgment, we would not have to prepare as much communion on communion Sundays, would we? Mike, pause for just a moment before we eat that bread and drink that cup. Probably something to learn from that for all of us. Well, why the short survey of sin that led to physical death in the Bible. Because many come to our text that we are going to go through today and they leave confused about what kind of sin excludes the sinning Christian from receiving prayer from those brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, John does write there in verse 16, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he or the Christian there should make request or pray, most of your translations have, for this. Well, herein lies the problem. If this text to sin, uh, about sin that leads to death or physical death, like we had just surveyed, then, uh, then the Christians, if there is such a thing, are to only be praying for their brothers and sisters about sins that do not lead to physical death. And we can look, as we did in the survey, and we can see that there are certainly sins that led to physical death and shortened the life of a believer or God's people. But is that what the text is talking about? I will tell you that there is no short amount of commentary written on these verses. And whether you take these verses as eternal death or physical death, there are problems uh, that you must answer and must respond to. Many people that I respect and love go one way, and others that I respect and love take it the other some physical, some eternal. So maybe there's some room for us to discuss, but today I want to lean in on the reality that I believe that is eternal death we are speaking of here. If it were physical death, we would have to know what sins we should not be praying for. Are they usurping God's appointed pastoral authority or lying about and attempting to manipulate the elders with money? Or is it taking communion in an unworthy manner? If those sins always led to physical death, then we could give a hearty amen, right? We couldn't we? To John. And we could just say, well, people are tipping over every time they lie to the pastors, every time they steal money, right? Every time they take communion. And we would say, Don't do that. And as a matter of fact, that's what John would then be affirming here. Don't pray for them. And we could even conjecture as to why would you not pray for them? And because the answer is that they are going to be dead. 
No reason to pray for them. They'll be dead. Well, as you can see, if you've ever studied 1 John, you've come across these verses. They are difficult verses. Even as I listened to Troy this morning speak them out, you just kind of walk away going, I'm not really sure what he just read. Does anybody else feel like that in here? Like, what exactly was going on there? However, I believe the most faithful understanding is the one, as I have mentioned, uh, that we can understand in the, in the context of eternity, in the context of this letter. Let's remember that we have moved into the closing statements of 1 John. We have come into chapter 5, and specifically in these uh, after verse 3 there, on has been all John uh, speaking to Christians who are, have been confused by unbelievers in the church who have split the church and likely some still remain in the church. John has been defining what a genuine Christian is and what a, genu- a, a fake Christian is throughout the letter. But he's been doing so to bring assurance since chapter 5 that we can know those genuine Christians can know that we will have eternity with God. The churches in and around Ephesus have been splitting because of so-called brothers who had once been among them, but had never been of them. So the Spirit inspired John to write the genuine Christians so that they could know that they have eternal victory in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Last week, we learned that when genuine Christians pray according to the Father's will, that prayer will be answered. That is the context of these verses. So as much as they may seem a little bit difficult, a little bit strange to our ears, certainly a Greek reader and and John's disciples would have understood exactly what he's meaning here. comes across a little odd in English. But we cannot separate it from the remainder of the letter. We can't just hard shift to gears and say, well, he must be now talking about a physical death. The whole letter has been encouraging them, come into eternal life. Don't experience eternal death. This week, our focus is on Christians praying for one another when they see another professed Christian caught up in sin. Beloved, we'll see today that it is the will of God to grant eternal life to those who have not abandoned apostolic Christianity. Is what is going on in our text. It's what's going on in the letter. By and large, what is confusing in verse 16, John clarifies in verse 17 saying this, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. The point of the text is that Christians would be praying. We know that we're going to get hung up in sin. We know that we're going to walk away. We know that we're going to struggle. And the idea that John is teaching here is we know that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. He's trying to give Christians this idea of, of, of eternal assurance. And he knows, right, we are going to sin. <laughs> if we, uh, John includes himself as an apostle, if we sin, he's faithful. We confess it. He counts himself among the sinners. What a glorious truth. And we know that God 
will grant eternal life because of the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's dive into this. 1 John 5, verse 16, if you're not there yet. Like I said, these verses confound many, and I'll be honest that they have done the same to me. Uh, There is not a, a single conservative commentary that lined up exactly with the others. There are a multiplicity of ways to take this, but what I have done for you, and I hope that you picked up one of our bulletins this morning, is I have written in there for you not what I would call at all a translation. I'm not saying this is a translation, but if you want to know or you want to look back to what I have taught and where I've landed, that is what I have landed upon. Um, So I have then given you a rendition of what I believe is being taught here. So I'll read through it now, and then we'll go through it. If you don't have one, we made a lot of copies. I think they may be back on the back uh, sheet. Some Some of the bulletins may not have received one. Anyway, this is Pastor Carl's rendition. If a Christian sees his professing brother committing sin, not leading to eternal death, then we should pray for them. And we can know that God will give eternal life to those who commit sin, not leading to eternal death. There is a sin leading to eternal death. I do not say that Christians should make requests for universal salvation. We can know that false Christians and unbelievers will not receive eternal life. Why? It is not God's will. Beloved, do not forget, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to eternal death. So I hope that helps you. I've listened to a few sermons on this. Most of them leave you so confused, you're not quite sure what was said. (laughs) I don't want to do that today, so I left you with what I'm going to say. I may still confuse you, but I've helped you as much as I can. Amen? The NASB says, if anyone sees his brother. If anyone sees his brother. The conditional clause, if there can be understood to to be like this, when you see your brother. And the idea, beloved, is that we are going to see our brother sin. But also the tense and the the understanding of the grammar here tells us that we need to see it, right? Don't be talking about it. Don't be uh, having a rumor uh, fly around about somebody's sin. But if you see your brother, then we're going to have a command that comes up here. So when anyone, when anyone, I'm going to say a Christian is in view here. That's who John has been writing. There's the sense then when a Christian actually sees his brother committing sin. This gives us a little picture into the Christian life. I don't know about you, but I did not go to a church until I was 23 years old, and I guess I had a lot of preconceived notions about what church was. Uh, I assumed everybody had their lives together and were perfect, and they weren't sinners like I was. I was just a celebrated sinner. (laughs) And... Lo and behold, as I was a young Christian and began to get involved in the church and began to see that sin still existed in people's lives, it, it kind of shocked me. And I wish somebody had told me that I was for sure going to see another brother committing sin. I'll never forget, one of the older men in the church took me aside. He began to disciple me. And he asked me this question. He said, Carl, <laughs> what preconceived notions do you have about the church? 
And I looked at him so naively, I'm like, none. <laughs> oh, you mean other than I thought everybody was perfect and that my sin, I would never sin again, and all these other issues that were in my life. So funny. I still am not sure what my preconceived notions of sin and the church are. But pay attention here. Nowhere in my wildest dreams was I ready for the reality that not everyone who went to church were actually real brothers and sisters in Christ. Those lessons caused deep pain and a real struggle for me. But Jesus taught something like this in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. I have it up here on the screen for you. You can follow along. He was saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came to him and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them into bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. What a tough teaching. It likely is very applicable to all of us in this room this morning that there are tares among the wheat. People who maybe think they have a genuine life and faith and belief in Christ. Maybe they don't. Maybe they just like coming to church. There's a lot of people I've met like that. I've met people in church services or after church services. You ask them what the gospel is, they're no idea what the gospel is. No idea what sin is. No idea how their sin has separated them. They just like people. <laughs> And they like church people, and maybe they grew up in the church. And they're a terror among the wheat. They've not been born again. And what a hard lesson to learn as a young man to start to realize, wow, what a battle we are entering in as Christians. What love should we have for one another that we would not allow tares amongst our midst, that we would love people well enough to ask them those hard questions and and ask them to repent of sin and put their faith in Christ and to be born again. Amen? I don't want to get too far off course here, but it's important to know that many people who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ are in fact not. That is why in my rendition of verse 16, I have typed that word professing in front of brother. Remember that in chapter 2, verse 19, we were introduced to Antichrist teachers in the churches around Ephesus. Think about that just a little bit, this letter to uh, Ephesus that John is reading in the region of it. Many of, much of our New Testament is focused towards this region in Ephesus, is it not? John is writing 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Paul is writing to the, to the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian letter, much of the book of Acts records all the action and stuff that is going on in Ephesus, and we start to begin to get a real picture of how much energy, how much 
battle is going on for this church in the region of Ephesus and what, a, what an important place it is. But in 1 John 2.19, it says this, that they, those are the Antichrist teachers from verse 18, went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us, I would add there, so that would be shown that they all, pay attention here, this is in the present tense, are not right now of us. Another example of false Christians among the church is found when Luke records Paul talking to the Ephesian elders in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, saying, from among your own selves, he's speaking to the elders, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, beloved. We have a number of very young Christians in our own body that God has grown up, and if you are one of those, you need to understand that there are tares among the wheat. There are dangers among the elders. There's always a battle for right doctrine. And when John is saying here in 1 John 5, 16, the brothers, we always have to qualify a little bit. The professed brothers. He has already said, right, that they are among us. They went out from us. They were with us. They did claim to be Christians, and then they went away from us, right? Why? Because they were actually never of us. They were never really Christians, but we call them brothers. And so John is saying here, if any professed brother, if any professed brother, my rendition, I've added the word eternal in front of death for committing a sin not leading to death. And why did I add eternal? Because all sin leads to physical death. The wages of sin is death. That is the only, uh, uh, not the only, but one of the reasons that I believe that um, this is not speaking of sin leading to a physical death. Everyone dies because everyone has sinned. Amen? We are all going to die. Maybe uh, someone who wants to take a temporal kind of view of this, maybe God grants them longer life and physical life or he takes their life from them. I don't know. That's a little hard for me to, to grasp. But here, I believe that we need to understand this as eternal death, sin, not leading to eternal death. However, as we, and because we study 1 John, he has been speaking of the eternal nature of these two types of people that have already been found in the church and may still be in. Remember, there are those who walk in the light. Those are Christians. And those who walk in the darkness, they are not Christians. Those who say they have sinned, those are Christians. And those who say they have not sinned, they are not Christians. Those who keep Christ's commandments, they are Christians. And those who will not, are not. Those who lay down their lives for the church are Christians. And those who will not, are not. Those who hate the world are Christians, and those who do not hate the world are not Christians. Those who do the will of God are Christians, and they live forever, we learned. And those who do not will not. Those who practice righteousness are of Christ, and those who practice sin, we learned, are of the devil. John has been speaking of eternity throughout the letter. He is pushing on this idea that there are those among you 
They are trying to draw you away. They are trying to deceive you. They will call themselves Christians. They might even sound good, look good, and smell good. How's your neighbor smell? Just trying to wake you up. Even if they smell bad, they might be a Christian. But you should probably tell them. That would be the loving thing to do. Therefore, John has written of the eternal nature of instruction all throughout this letter. And it is especially clear in 1 John 2, 25 and 26, where we studied, this is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. Verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who are, notice the present tense, trying to deceive you. There are still people in the church who are trying to deceive, trying to pull out, trying to parse out. The context, beloved, then leads us to understand that this sin is the sin of eternal life and eternal death. My rendition effectively says when we see a professing Christian who is sinning, then we shall pray for them and we can know There is the confidence that I'm adding in from verses 14 and 15, and and this still is this this context of, of praying and receiving, right? And so we can know Uh, that God will give eternal life to those who commit sin, not leading to eternal death. It makes sense. In other words, beloved Christians are going to sin, and when we see it, and it is not an eternal sin, we would commit to pray for them. And do not worry, they will receive eternal life. Why? Because God saves. And if God saves, God keeps. And if that relationship is real and it was genuine and you are born again, certainly you will sin, but you will certainly repent of that sin. And no doubt, God will save you, not based on something you did, but based on what Christ has done for you. Amen? He'll answer that prayer. He'll answer that prayer. I think it's important here to give us a little bit of a warning. We should have great assurance that when we sin, that God is going to forgive us. But I have met so many folks who kind of have a very blasé-faire kind of attitude about sin in their lives. Every time that we choose to sin, we should... Imagine coming face-to-face with Christ on the cross. I remember listening to John Piper one time talk about, uh, in particular, intimate or sexual-type sin that would tempt him and what he would do to stay away from it. He would close his eyes the second that he sensed that, and he would do everything he could to imagine Jesus Christ beaten, bloody, crucified, hanging on the cross, just digging for every amount of breath that he could have and Tell himself, do not sin. Why is it that we have such an attitude? Maybe it's because we're not tipping over dead, right? Sometimes we do 
what is right. Sometimes we take sin too lightly. I often hear this as a pastor when someone is trying to make themselves feel better about their ongoing sin. They'll say this. Have you heard this? You've probably said it. I've probably said it. Well, I'm just human. I'm just human. I'm like everyone else. I'm a sinner. And I get that, and there's some reality to that, no doubt, but the attitude of which we say that with matters. If we just go about living our life, and we're just creating a wake of destruction because uh, we don't care that our sin destroys our life and the lives that are around uh, us, yeah, that's, that's not the right idea. That is, that is taking the cross of Christ and it is just stomping on it like the writer of Hebrews would say, right? To, that there is no care for our sin. And we just go on about and the writer of Hebrews would warn, right? And say, You've, you are probably not a believer. <laughs> if you just go about sin saying, well, no biggie. You know, I've just sinned. Forgive me. I'm going to keep on moving on. And next time I sin, which will probably be in five seconds, and I'm going to do the same thing that I did before because there's no repentant heart in me. I'll just say, well, Christ will forgive me. Not the idea that we get from the text. Beloved, it's not the idea. When we have a right view of our sin and we come to Christ and we are broken because we understand that God is going to judge us for eternity, and then we realize that we can, like John Piper, look up to the cross of Christ and that the burden of sin falls off our back and tears come into our eyes and we begin to realize that in my horrible sinful state, God died for me. We take just some passive idea like, eh, whatever, I'm just a sinner. I don't think we've understood the weight of the cross. Maybe you are that person this morning. You call yourself a, a Christian, and that's been your attitude. What about that text where Jesus would call us and say, Be holy as I am holy. Repent and believe. Turn from your wicked way. Obey. Climb up this hill with your cross and die to that old self. Let us shake off our lethargy. If this I'm just a sinner has been your action and attitude, be assured uh, that, as 1 John 1, 9 says, we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that you can be forgiven. But as for the writer of Hebrews who warned, don't trample upon the blood of Christ. Don't trample upon the cross of Christ. So let's get back to it. When we see our brother in sin, we pray for them. And we can know that unless they are sinning unto eternal death, that God will answer that prayer. They will receive eternal life. They will receive eternal life. John goes on to confirm in this verse that there is a sin leading to death. What kind of death? Eternal death. What is the sin that leads to eternal death? This same apostle, the apostle John, declares it plainly in his gospel found in John 3.36. He sums up all of that great 
message that we know and we're so familiar with John 3.16 and some a little more with 17 and some with 18 and often we refer to this, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus and being born again and all these things, but it's summed up with this thought in John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not, notice here, obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God. For this Ephesian church, there were Antichrist teachers attacking the two natures of Christ. Therefore, they were not teaching the Christ of the Bible. They were teaching a different Christ than the apostles had taught. Effectively, they had not believed in the correct Jesus, and therefore their sinning was a sin unto eternal death. They had rejected apostolic Christianity. They had rejected the Jesus of the Bible. We have all these people running around, especially as you get a little closer uh, out here west, right? When I lived, I look at the young man here who's from North Carolina, is now at, at uh, LaGrange, uh, just, uh, just, just this week, he's coming from our support church. Um, I just, uh, why was I saying that? I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I am distracted now. <clears throat> ah, I think I found myself. The Ephesian church, they were antichrist teachers. They were attacking the two natures of Christ. Therefore, they were not teaching that Christ of the Bible. They were teaching a different Christ than the apostles had taught. Effectively, they had not believed. They had not believed the scriptures. They had not believed them. There are people who are hopping around and telling you about Jesus. They call them the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witnesses, and neither one of them have a biblical view of Christ. They are sinning the sin unto eternal death. They are not teaching. John 3.36, they do not have the Christ. They do not have the right Son. John says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I certainly don't know everybody in the room this morning, but have you believed and have you obeyed? Feel the weight of that for just a second. So many people just go on in their sin. Some of them just like church, and they're maybe here this morning. There's no obedience, no desire for obedience. They like the idea of being saved by grace, amen and amen, but the idea of following the Christ of the Bible is nowhere in their psyche, nowhere in their desire. You can't read First John and feel comfortable about that condition. Don follows this confident assurance and says that there is sin leading to eternal death with nothing short of a perplexing statement saying, I do not say that he should make request for this. I do not say that he should make request for this or pray for this, depending on your translation there. John wrote in 
1 John 5.14, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Effectively, John is saying here in our text, I do not say that Christians should make requests for this. What is the for this? It is directly related to eternal death and prayers that will not be answered. And I believe that this unanswerable request is for the universal salvation of all people. That is a prayer that God certainly will not answer. And why, as we look back to verse 14, it is not God's will. It does not make sense that we would ask for God to, well, just save everybody. (laughs) Forget the fact that you came to earth and suffered and died in unjust death. Forget that, Lord. Just save everybody, and we would all just want that. Amen? John is saying here, don't ask for that. It's not going to be answered. It is not the will of God. Because it is not God's will, one must repent of their sins and believe in the apostolic doctrines found on the pages of Scripture. Beloved, please do not get sleepy with sharing the gospel with your friends, your family, your co-workers, and those who you meet. Eternity is on the line. Eternity is on the line. Amen? John sums up the thought on answered prayer and once again encourages us sinners by reminding us that all unrighteousness, verse 17, is sin, and there is sin not leading to eternal death. Praise God, right? That our continued sin will not cause us to lose our salvation. Only the sin of rejecting the apostolic understanding of who Jesus was and accepting him, following him will lead to eternal life. Every born-again Christian in here says, Amen. Beloved, we've seen today that it is the will of God to grant eternal life to those who have not abandoned apostolic Christianity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your word and, Lord, even the time to dig into this text that has many speed bumps and thoughts and Different things connected to it. Pray, Lord, that as we have gone through it this morning, that you will have been moving on the hearts of people, drawing them back to yourselves. Thank you, Lord, that as genuine Christians, that we can revel in 1 John 1 9 and know, Lord, that if we sin and we confess it, that you'd be faithful and just to forgive us. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to walk with Christian brothers and sisters and in the church the way you have designed it. Certainly, Lord, we understand that there will be tares among the wheat, but Lord, give us eyes, ears, and hearts to love those people. We might see many come to know you. Thank you, Lord, that so many in here do know you and that they will receive eternal life. I pray as we ponder this text that there would be much assurance knowing that, Lord, you will answer the prayer for eternal life because of our faith in your son, Jesus. We'll give you all the glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.